from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 15 through 29. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you that your son, while on the earth, came and spoke your word and declared your word and gave to his disciples precious promises, which now have become, through your word, applied to us. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would exalt his work among us, that your spirit would be active in this time and that he would cause love for Christ to be made manifest in our hearts, that there would be a true revelation of the privilege that we have in knowing the triune God. Father, we thank you for your gift of your son and how you likewise gave your spirit, having recognized what your son did, and having glorified him and having installed him at your right hand, we thank you for giving him the Holy Spirit 
so that the Spirit could come to us. We pray that you would open our lives to these realities and that your Spirit would find a home in us, not just individually, but as your people. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, as we have been doing the last few weeks, we are returning to words that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke in the upper room before His crucifixion. We are revisiting things that He has said now after having celebrated the resurrection. And in the light of the resurrection, we are reinterpreting or remembering what He said to hear it in a fresh and new way. After the resurrection, we're able to remember that as Jesus is about to go to the cross, He teaches His disciples things that they need to hear and know so that they can be persevered in their faith. Jesus, in this passage, is promising to ask the Father to send another helper, to to send someone who would take His place to be with the disciples, that He would be a personal presence in the disciples' lives, and that that helper, this Holy Spirit, would fill their lives with the fullness of God. So as we close the season of Easter, we continue to remember these words because they have lasting impact, not just for what they did to the disciples, but how they apply to us. In the light of His resurrection, we remember His promise. In this passage, He said, "'Because I live, you also will live.'" And even though he has been raised to life, we also remember his promise that he would soon depart. But Jesus, as as we read in this passage, also promised to send another helper to be with us, here's the key phrase, forever. To be with us forever. Jesus' words powerfully deliver us from grieving his departure. Haven't you ever thought it would have been better to be a disciple than it would be to be a Christian today? To have seen the Lord Jesus in the flesh going about healing and doing miracles? Wouldn't it have been amazing to see him after the resurrection walking around a glorified man? But brothers and sisters, we we don't have that privilege. We have a much better and greater privilege, don't we? Jesus' words help us to recognize that instead of grieving his departure we should actually be able to rejoice at His departure because we know there is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Without Jesus' words, we might be tempted to diminish the gift of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus helps us to understand that the Holy Spirit is a wonderful helper and that He will be with us forever. We today often have a diminished appreciation of who the Holy Spirit is. This is a great need and a great problem in our day. We have a very diminished appreciation of who the Spirit is. Some of us, when we think about the redemptive plan of history, we jump immediately from the resurrection to the expectation of the second coming. We, we may not even celebrate the ascension at all, as we will in this church next week. And we often will just give token lip service to the day of Pentecost. If we've come from a charismatic or Pentecostal background, we may celebrate that day, but we often truncate the work of the Holy Spirit to something other than what He is doing in this passage. We tend to have a problem. We minimize the activity of the Holy Spirit to momentary experiences 
Instead of recognizing the Spirit's true desire, which is to make Christ magnified in the hearts of His people and to cause the Father and Son to dwell in His people. We fail to recognize the wonder and the mystery of all that Jesus procured from the Father for us in the sending of the Holy Spirit. And that's why today I want to look at how the triune God dwells with us. Succinctly, the the aim is this, that the Holy Spirit desires to be in us as He is. I want to say that again. The Holy Spirit, His goal, His desire is to be in us as He actually is, holy. Just as He makes the Holy One Christ present to us, He transforms us to be holy ones, to be saints, to be set apart, to be a home for God, and to be those through whom God can reach the world. Therefore, Jesus' words about the Holy Spirit in this passage show us how to rightly thank God for the gift of the Spirit. That is what this passage answers. We diminish who the Holy Spirit is to momentary experiences, and we miss the full scope of what He has given to us to do, to sanctify us, to cause Christ to be made present to our lives, to our minds, to our souls, and to make us holy. And therefore, this passage also helps us answer the great problem of we do not thank God enough for the Holy Spirit. Now, in in truth, it would be impossible to thank God fully for any of His gifts. Amen? However, there is a minimum standard where if we do not acknowledge to the Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit, the Spirit will not be glorified. He won't be receiving the glory that is due Him, and He will not be pleased to make His presence and power and activity manifest in great ways in our life and in our churches. Therefore, we read these words of Jesus, not just applying to the disciples, but applying to us down through the Scriptures to the present day. Knowing the Holy Spirit's unique work in representing Christ to us, we can put away, we can, we can have the confidence to, the, the moral resolve to put away everything which quenches Him and which grieves Him, that we would be a true temple in which He would dwell. To that end, I want to look at this passage in three ways. This is a message about the triune God, and therefore I thought it fitting to examine this passage of the Lord Jesus' teaching in a triune manner. First, that the Father is the one who sends the Spirit. The Father answers the petition of the Lord Jesus Christ and sends the Spirit upon His people. Next, I want to look at how Jesus teaches that the Son is about to ascend, He's about to go away, and then He's about to come. Isn't that interesting? He says, I'm, I'm going to go away to you, and then He immediately says, I won't, I won't leave you as orphans, I will come to you. I want to look at how the Lord Jesus comes to His people. Then I want to look at how the Spirit dwells in His people and teaches His people all that the Son had said. First, Jesus asks the Father to give the Holy Spirit to the disciples. Throughout Jesus' entire teaching in this passage, the triune God is displayed as the one who gloriously and harmoniously works together with one unique desire to beautify a people for His own glory. God's greatest aim in this passage is to magnify God 
by sustaining the believers. I want you to understand that clearly. God's greatest aim in this passage is not to make the disciples great. His greatest aim in this passage is to be seen as the one who sustains the disciples and the one who upholds the disciples and the one who plans and comes and fulfills the longing of the disciples. The the entire point of this passage is that the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are gloriously, harmoniously working together to magnify God by sustaining His people. So the Father isn't seeking glory outside of the Son. The Son isn't seeking glory outside of fulfilling the Father's will. They are all harmoniously working together to make God great in the eyes of the disciples. Jesus says in verse 16, And I will ask the Father. Notice we've skipped verse 15. If you were closely paying attention, we skipped verse 15. I'm going to deal with it when we get to verse 21. We're not going line by line. We're allowed to do that. (laughs) Verse 16, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. The Father gives the Spirit because of the obedience of the Son, not because of the obedience of the disciples. I will ask the Father and He will give. The Father is so delighted to answer the request of His perfect Son that Jesus is able to say, beforehand, I'm going to ask, future tense, I am going to ask, and He will give. Definitive statement. Jesus rightly says that the Father will be pleased to answer the Son. The Father and the Son are so unified in purpose to preserve these disciples, that Jesus knows that the Father will give the Spirit. He's not guessing. He's not hoping. He knows His petition will be heard, and it will be answered affirmatively. It will be answered quickly, without delay. The Father gives the Spirit perfectly to the disciples. Therefore, Jesus says, this helper will be with you forever. The Father entrusts His perfect precious Holy Spirit to these disciples because they are in Jesus, not because they have earned Him. This is a glorious doctrine recovered in the Reformation, was the doctrine of union with Christ, that the believer in heart and soul has been united by faith to the Lord Jesus, and that when the Father sees the mediator, the Lord Jesus, He does not look at the disciples around the Lord Jesus, but He sees them in the Lord Jesus. This was typified beforehand that when the priest would come into the temple, he would have the stones of the tribes of Israel written on their name. He would have each of these precious gemstones and each tribe, Dan, Issachar, Zephaniah, they would be written on, uh, they would be written on these stones and they would place these stones on the ephod or the breastplate and he would come in to the temple and he would bear the nation's weight before the presence of Yahweh. This is exactly what Jesus does as John captures it in Revelation 4 and 5, that the lion of the tribe of Judah walks up to the Father and he receives that scroll because the Father is pleased to grant him his request. Jesus 
is perfectly obeying the Father. And therefore, the Father entrusts the Spirit because these disciples are in Jesus. Jesus, as the mediator and forerunner of the disciples, receives the Spirit that the disciples might receive Him as well. Just as the Father has given up the Son for redemption, so also He gives the Spirit for sanctification. The Father put forward His Son as a propitiation to be received by faith. That when we hear the knowledge or the message that God gave God to take on the wrath of God against the people of God, so that the people of God could be delivered from the wrath of God, that is what the Scriptures mean when God put forward His Son to be a propitiation. That Jesus Christ has assuaged the wrath of God. And therefore, not only has the Son been given by God, God put forward the Son, likewise, God puts forward the Spirit. Not to be an atonement, but to make those ones for whom have been atoned, to make them holy. To make them all that Christ purchased on the cross. The Father so loves the Son that He desires to dwell with the Son in the believers. I want you to pay attention today to the, to the prepositions that, that we are in Christ and that the Father wants to dwell with the Son in the believers. And therefore, because the Father has that desire, because He's adopted these children and wants to be at home with them, so to speak, He gives the Spirit to make them a pleasing home. God has a beautiful home in the believers, and the Father gives the Spirit so that He could be with His children. The Father's giving of the Spirit to dwell within the disciples is a sign that they are truly God's children. Because, Jesus says, the world cannot receive Him. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. He's not just a force or one who causes warm feelings or encourages us in worship times with a sense of the newness or a sense of the um, mysterious. The, the Holy Spirit is not a special effect of modern churches. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. The world hates the truth. And therefore, the Spirit can't find a home in the world. And therefore, the Spirit can only come to the disciples. Jesus says that the disciples actually truly know Him. That just as the disciples have come to know that the Son is truly the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, they also know the Holy Spirit. They have been hearing from the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is with you and will be in you. Real disciples love the truth. This is a great test of, of, are you an authentic believer? Do you really trust in the risen Christ? Have you really become a new creation? One of the great signposts or the great tests is, do you long for the truth? Does the truth find a home in your life and in your heart, in your mind? Therefore, because real disciples love the truth, the Father's children love the presence and the true activity of the Holy Spirit, even when the Spirit convicts us. Because we are before, before our own pride, before our own selfish ambition, before our own sins of the flesh, we have a greater affinity, a greater resolve that we want the truth. 
We want to know the truth, and we want our lives to be true lives in harmony with the God who made us. Because God's children know that the Father is ultimately for their good, they receive His chastisements and His disciplines. This is what it means to be a true child of God. The book of Hebrews teaches that if we are never disciplined, we are illegitimate children, but that if we are truly God's children, He disciplines those who are His. He disciplines those who He loves. Isn't that the case? You don't go around, you shouldn't go around disciplining other people's sons and daughters, but you do have to discipline your own. God gave us human families that we would learn from that how He relates to His children. He does discipline them. Sometimes the Spirit will, in a sense, lift or make His presence unknown to the disciple. Not to abandon the disciple, but to cause him to recognize when the disciple's life is, in, is not in harmony with the gospel and all of its claims. The Father does not take away the Spirit The Spirit does not abandon true disciples, yet there are times of chastisement when it feels like the hand of the Lord is heavy upon us. Those are actually times, brothers and sisters, where the Spirit is present. He is just not present to bless you in your willful iniquity. He is present to cause you to feel the weight of God's consternation against iniquity. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Likewise, how can we expect the Holy Spirit to be encouraging and to be strengthening and to be enlivening when we are in willful sin? To be sure, a mark of a true disciple is we love the truth, even when the truth is set against what we have done or what we are currently aiming at. Therefore, we ought to recognize what the Father's giving of the Spirit says about us. One of the ways that we see this passage is it actually teaches us the true reality of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Father's granting of the Spirit to us radically shapes the core of who we understand ourselves to be. All those who are given the Holy Spirit have been chosen by God, and they have dignity and are His temple. They're called to be holy. I remember it was the I want to say perhaps 100th time, I don't know the number of times that I read through the curses of Genesis 2 and 3, three specifically, and I recognized for the first time that God didn't curse the men. He cursed the ground. He didn't curse the woman. He said her her childbirth will, will have pain in it. Yes, there is an aspect of the curse on all of creation, but God's people are not cursed alone in... Now, it's, it's complicated, but I, I just want to try to make it plain. Christ has borne the curse for us. Therefore, we're no longer in Adam. We aren't cursed any longer. Likewise, we do not have to be those who think we've been expelled out of the garden by the giving of the Holy Spirit. It's God saying to His people, you're coming back into the garden. All those who are given the Holy Spirit are invited to harmoniously living with God, to knowing God, to, to exalting in God, to delighting in God. The question is, what if you are concerned that you will lose the Holy Spirit? The, the greatest cause for asking the question, 
can I lose the Holy Spirit, is a conscience that is bearing witness against you that your life is not in step with God's Word. The, the resolve of this question is to ask for insight into what grieves Him. Perhaps you're doing something that actually is quite grievous to the Lord and you do not know, and the Holy Spirit is, is feeling distant to you. There's a sense in which His activity is not in your life. You, you don't have a love for the Word. You don't have a desire for fellowship with other believers. If you are in this case, if you're concerned that you have lost the Spirit, or that his activity seems far from your life. Ask the Lord that you would be able to understand what grieves him, and that God would cause you to bear fruit. One of the wonderful truths of the Christian life is it is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is not the fruit of John Weiss. It is not the fruit of John Gray. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He causes us to bear fruit. And therefore, if we don't see our lives bearing fruit, we have to ask Him, Lord, would you cause me? Cause me to bear fruit. Cause me to be in step with who you say I am as your child. Cause me to look like your child, to think like you think, to live like you live. So we move to the sun now. The sun ascends and comes to his people. Even as Jesus is about to ascend to the Father, he desires at that moment that the disciples know that they are not abandoned. He is going to come to them through the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, it says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me, and I in you. I want to read that verse 20 again. In that day, you will know that I, am in the, that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus comes to his disciples through the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The disciples are not orphans between his ascension and his second coming. When Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, he is not referring to the second coming at the end of all things. He is not re referring to the, the great coming, even in judgment in 70 AD against the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. He does not say, you will be orphans for a time, no, he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Jesus clearly through this teaching says that he comes to his disciples through the coming of the Holy Spirit. You and I are not waiting for this coming, this particular coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be sure, you and I are still waiting for the final coming at the end of the age as we uh, expressed in the creed this morning. Jesus comes to the disciples, therefore, after his ascension through the coming of the Holy Spirit. The disciples are not orphans between his ascension and second coming. After the ascension, the world is no longer going to be able to see Christ. But the disciples will indeed see him because they have eyes that can see unseen things. He says, in a little while, the world will see me no longer. 
If you remember last week, we talked about how in John's gospel, there's this great theme of light and darkness and blindness and sight. And all of these things begin in John 1 and really come to culmination in John 9 with the man born blind and how the Jews do not know who the Lord Jesus is. And yet the man who Jesus heals from blindness is instantly able to see naturally Christ and spiritually Christ. Jesus is saying that the world is not going to be able to see me any longer. It is true that the world before the Lord Jesus ascended was not able to see Christ, spiritually speaking. But what Jesus means is that the world will not have the ability to look upon him with natural eyes. The disciples are going to see him, however. They have the same type of eyes on one level with the rest of the world. But they have another set of eyes. The disciples, through the grace of God, are given a second pair of eyes, if you will. A set of spiritual eyes that can see the unseen things. By the Holy Spirit, these disciples are going to be given spiritual eyes to behold who Jesus is as the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what Paul prays for, right, with the Ephesians? I pray that the understanding of your heart may be opened and that you would be given spiritual sight. The eyes of your heart, the understanding of your inner life would be opened, that you could perceive who God is and that you could have real new life. Jesus says, in that day, And we might ask the question, which day is he referring to? Well, he's referring not to a particular 24-hour period, but rather a day of his ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit. Both events which happened at different times, thinking linearly, both of those two times are one day. And in that day, Jesus says, we will know three things. That Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the true mediator and that he is Emmanuel. First, Jesus says that we will know, quote, that I am in my Father. In the ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we know that the Son is truly the Son. He is the Son, not by himself, but the Son of the Father. By the ascending of the Son, he shows us that we are actually in him, as Jesus bears us, as I said earlier, bears us before the Father. The reason we know this is that the Father is pleased to give Christ the Holy Spirit that Christ may receive it on our behalf and then turn around and bestow it upon us. In Acts 2.33, which we will hopefully recall in two weeks on the day of Pentecost, Peter says that the Lord Jesus has ascended and received the Holy Spirit and has poured him out upon us. Jesus is not just the Son of God. By divinity, he also is the mediator by God's will, and he comes to receive the Holy Spirit that he could turn around and give the Holy Spirit to his people. And in his coming by the Holy Spirit, we see that he is in us. His name, as it is said in Isaiah 7 and in Matthew chapter 1, you shall call his name Emmanuel, because he is going to be God with us. Jesus is is vindicated. He's shown as the Son and the Mediator and Emmanuel. In the midst of describing the disciples' life, in the midst of God's love, Jesus teaches us how to love, how love and obedience relate. 
Jesus reminds his disciples that true love for him will always result in obedience to him. I want to emphasize that always. Jesus is teaching that love for him will always result in obedience to him. Do I mean obedience at all times? No. But I mean that if you truly love Jesus Christ, you will begin to obey him. And that obedience should mature and develop and fulfill throughout your life. I said we skipped 15, and now we're coming back to 15 and 21. John 14, 15 and 21. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Great question we must ask at this point is, does Jesus mean that obedience for him consists only in having and keeping Jesus' commandments? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we must ask ourselves, does love for Jesus primarily exist or subsist in keeping the commandments? Put another way, does Jesus say that obedience for him is keeping the commandments, or is love for him? The answer is no. Jesus does not say that love for him is commandment keeping. Jesus is to be loved with real affection. Everything within us, all of our longings, our hopes, our desires, our joys, should find in Jesus total satisfaction. Jesus is not loved through external obedience alone. True affection for the Lord Jesus Christ is not the same as obeying Him. If we claim to truly love Jesus, to have affection for Jesus, to look upon Jesus with eyes of faith and have desire for Jesus, then love for Jesus will cause us to obey where we would not otherwise obey. I want you to think about this in your own life especially if you're married, perhaps this is true, or if you have parents, this is also true, that there are times in your life where affection for a person will cause you to do things that you would not otherwise do if there were no affection for that person. Any engaged couple knows this is true. Any married couple should know this is true. That there are things that you do which you would not otherwise do if that love did not exist. And at the same time, you also know it is true through human experience, through natural revelation, that love for someone does not consist in obeying what they say. There are times where love requires you not to do what they say. With regard to husbands and wives, Imagine if you, if you understand obedience or doing what someone says to, to be the exact same thing as love, then everything would fall apart in, in human life. God has so wired all of our existence to say something about ultimate reality of loving Jesus that we know these things to be true. Think about this. Do you have to kiss your wife? You want to kiss your wife. And if you ask your wife... Do I have to kiss you, honey? 
How lacking of love would that be? It would be to slaughter love. It would be to make a farce of love. Loving Christ does not consist alone in keeping His commandments. Love for Christ is real affection from the deepest place in our lives. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not love me more than father or mother or brother or sister or son or daughter, he is unworthy of me. I understood that quite well, I thought, when I was a young man. And even in my marriage, I understand that quite well. It's begun to to be more challenging as I've had children. Because there is a sort of love, if you have children, you know this, there is a sort of love that you have for your children that is totally different than romantic love that you have for your spouse. And what Jesus says, if you do not have real affection for me, greater than your affection for your natural relations, you are unworthy to be my disciple. That is the impact of the Christian life. We are to behold Jesus by the eyes of faith with such clarity by the help of the Holy Spirit that when we see him dying in our place and in our stead, that we look on him and everything within us says, yes, I want that. I want to know him. And it surpasses every other form of love. This is why you have to understand these verses in this way. You cannot hear Jesus say, if you love me, keep my commandments, and respond to this question saying, Lord, I'm going to love you by trying harder. I'm going to love you by keeping commandments better. To answer this question wrongly, I say, is to destroy the Christian faith. Reducing love for Jesus to merely be external obedience that is unmotivated by real affections, is to completely miss the claims of the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel holds out that God has loved us through the Son and forgiven us of all of our sins. Therefore, because we have been loved so deeply, we are transformed to obey from the heart. You know this is true in your, in your relationships, that real gifts, real obedience does not come with stern, external gripping to the particular details of the external written code, but rather it is to be so loved by the other that you wish to do everything you can to express that love. That's what love is. Love overflows into obedience. Love for Jesus is clearly not the same thing as obeying Jesus. Now, what I mean here is not that love for Jesus should be divorced from obedience to Jesus, but it is not the same thing. Jesus says that obedience is a consequence of loving him. That is to say, keeping Jesus' commandments is evidence of true love for Jesus. Jesus does not say in these verses, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he will be counted as one who loves me. No, Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Love for Jesus is the evidence of having been loved by the Father. Though it may seem like Jesus implies that love for him begets love by the Father in these verses, it is actually the complete opposite Love for Jesus is evidence that you have been loved by the Father. The reason that this has to be true is many look upon the cross and see nothing there. 
They don't have any desire to be known by or to know the God who took their sins. Love for Jesus Christ, knowing that you behold Christ and, and you see Him as taking on your penalty, is a gift of love by God. God, by the Holy Spirit, has opened your eyes to see Christ crucified. And that in seeing Him, you recognize that I should have been there. And not only have I been there, but that in Christ's death, I was there. And that now, because of Christ's resurrection, I'm now no longer dead. Love for Jesus, affection for Jesus, a life that wants to glorify the Lord Jesus is evidence of having been loved by the Father. Jesus does not say that the Father will love all those who keep the commandments. He says that the Father does love, not will love. It's very, it's very particular, and unfortunately, I don't have any better skill to say it than in this way, that love for Jesus is the evidence of already having been loved by the Father. Those who love Jesus have been loved by Jesus through his forgiving of their sins. In Luke 7, we hear in Luke's gospel that Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house and a woman comes to Jesus and she kneels down at his feet and she begins to take her hair. And as she is weeping over the Lord Jesus' feet, she begins to wash his feet with her hair and with an ointment of oil. You do not love someone enough to kiss their feet unless that person for you is greater than life. This is a sort of expression of love that is actually greater than any expression that I have ever heard of in any sort of marriage relationship or perhaps even in the history of the world, save for Christ's expression on the cross. What she does to the Lord Jesus Christ is self-debasing if he was not honoring her in the midst of her love giving to him. I want you to picture this clearly. Jesus is, is sitting at table and there, there are Pharisees around. There are other rabbis who think they are a better rabbi than the Lord Jesus. The disciples are there, some of them. And this woman comes and she begs down at his feet. And she weeps over him publicly. She weeps over him and grieves over who she has been and then weeps for joy out of who he is to her as the forgiving one. This is why Jesus says in Luke 7, 47, he says about her in her presence to all the rest of those who hear and to us today, therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. And here's the real censure here. But he is who is forgiven little loves little. For the Lord Jesus Christ and for all of the Christian gospel, love for Jesus Christ comes from having been forgiven. It comes from having been loved by God. When we were at enmity with God, God loved us through the Lord Jesus Therefore, when we do not obey Jesus, it is a clear indication that our love for the Lord Jesus has grown cold. 
Ask yourself this. If your normal approach to answering the problem of lack of love for the Word, lack of prayer life, harshness with your family, disrespect to your boss, ask yourselves, how do you handle these bad fruits in your life? If the answer is, I'm going to get really disciplined, and I'm going to really set a schedule, and we're going to get on this, then you, you do not understand the motivating core of Christianity. The motivating core of Christianity is this, that we must answer the question of how should I respond to disobedience in life with a better, more fundamental understanding of the person of the Lord Jesus. If we attempt simply to try harder or believe more, it misses the entire point. The answer to all spiritual lethargy, all spiritual sloth, all deadness of soul, all lackluster obedience, all joyless prayer, all joyless reading of the Bible is to behold by faith the mystery of Christ crucified. That's why we sang that song this morning. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Let your eyes be opened to who Jesus is. The spiritual deadness, this spiritual deadness, however, is the reason that the world is unable to see Christ, isn't it? This is why Judas asks this question in verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Here again, very clearly, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. The question that Judas asks essentially is this, how can Jesus be manifest to the disciples without being manifest also to the world? And Jesus answers this perfectly. He reveals, as we mentioned earlier, there's a difference between spiritual seeing and physical seeing. The world does not have eyes to see Jesus Christ. And we could not see Jesus Christ either apart from Him manifesting Himself to us by the Holy Spirit. And yet to those who actually do see Jesus, who love Him and who keep His Word, the Father and the Son dwell in them by the Holy Spirit who was sent. This is the glory and privilege of the Christian life, that the Father and the Son, eternally begotten Son of God, the Father and the Son have come to dwell in the disciples through the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke to the disciples that night what he was able to, but not everything that night could be said nor could it be understood. Jesus did not have time to explain all that was necessary for them to understand. Jesus only spoke what he was able to given the occasion of the moment. This is the night of the Passover, and he is about to be apprehended and taken to the cross. And therefore, he considers the capability of his hearers. In John 16, just two chapters after this, he says to the disciples, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And therefore, he says that the Holy Spirit will come to them to help them. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
The Spirit does not come of His own accord, but is sent by the Father to carry on the ministry of the Son. The Holy Spirit does not have a separate agenda, but is gloriously exalting the Son in the hearts of the disciples. The Spirit will come to teach the disciples everything that Jesus wants them to know. The Spirit also will remind the saints of what Jesus has already said, and He will cause them to remember and to reinterpret and to, to, to activate, if you will, the meaning that was already there in what Jesus has said. We remember this last week in John 2, how it says that when Jesus was raised, then the disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed. The Spirit is going to come to be the presence of Christ. He's going to continue the very same ministry that Christ did while He was here on the earth. This is why I said at the beginning that many of us, when we think, oh, it would have been great for the Lord Jesus to be with us physically or to live at the time where he came, when He came, we, we completely diminish the glory of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit came to carry on the ministry of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has come so that Christ could be present to His disciples. And because Jesus promises that the Spirit will come, He is able to say to them that He will leave them with His peace. Verse 27, peace I leave to you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let, your hearts be, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus' promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit is the peace of the disciples. Jesus' peace is not a worldly gift. He says, I do not give my peace as the world gives peace. What does he mean by that? The world gives things for a number of different reasons. One, flattery. The world gives a gift as a bribe, in a sense. That if, if I really like somebody or I want someone to like me, I'll do a favor for them. That's fleshly, worldly giving. It's bribery, in a sense. It's flattery, and all flattery is lies. Jesus' gift of peace is not a worldly gift in that it's not in respect to what has been earned. It is not wages. Jesus does not give the Holy Spirit because the disciples have earned the Spirit. His gift of the Spirit is not based upon their prior performance or their prior obedience. It is actually true gift. In some ways, this is one of the, I love Christmas, never use this line of argumenting to not give gifts at Christmas if you are tempted to do this, that gifts at Christmas are only given an expectation of reciprocation. If that's the way you give gifts at Christmas, repent of that motivation and keep giving the gifts. Because the gift at Christmas is a presentation, a representation of what God gave in Christ and what Christ is giving in the Holy Spirit. That Christ is giving the Holy Spirit as pure gift, as real gift to bless, to beautify, to benefit, to strengthen, to encourage, to exhort, to build up the disciples individually and as Christ's church. Therefore, just as the Son is given to the world by the Father, so the Son gives the Spirit to the disciples. The reason why 
is because He lavishly loves them. He loves them in a way that defies human wisdom. Worldly gifts cannot be so extravagant, and yet God, in the sending of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus promises, God gives God to the disciples. That is what it means to recognize who the Holy Spirit is in His ministry. The peace that comes to these disciples is the peace that Jesus gives. It is a knowledge of His coming in the coming of the Spirit. His disciples, because of what He has promised, never need fear of being abandoned by God. We know through the coming of the Holy Spirit, through the Spirit's sanctifying activity in our life, that we are received by God because He comes to dwell within us. And we can live boldly knowing that we have God forever. Remember what Jesus said, I will ask and the Father will send you another helper to be with you into eternity, to be with you forever. Because Jesus has so clearly prophesied fulfillment of that prophecy at the coming of Pentecost and in the life of the believer is great assurance of real, true belief. Because we see the Holy Spirit at work in the church today, we know that Jesus truly did ascend. Many people think about evidence for the crucifixion, and this is often a common thing in evangelism. It's good to know that evidence. It's good to present that evidence. God is a real God who has worked in time and in history, and we never need be afraid of the evidence. However, the evidence of Christ's ascension doesn't exist in the natural realm apart from recognizing the Holy Spirit's continued work in the church in the last 20 centuries throughout the world. If Jesus did not actually ascend, the Holy Spirit could never have been poured out upon the church. And yet we see time and time again amazing, inexplicably glorious examples of the church loving Christ through sacrificial obedience, even at the pain of death. And the only explanation is that God is at work in their midst. Because we know that the Holy Spirit is at work in the church today, we have true, real, spiritual evidence that Jesus ascended and did send forth the Holy Spirit. He has not given the Spirit as the world gives. He doesn't give and then take back. He has given the Spirit until the end of the ages. Therefore, just as the Spirit was at work in the disciples in those days, He is also in the work, at work in the church today. Therefore, my calling to you this morning, that we as God's people, both individually and corporately as His temple, let us treasure the deposit of the Spirit, which He has caused to dwell in us, that we would have true fellowship with God and with one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit. We thank you that your Son came and not only took on our penalty on the cross, but that through his resurrection, he has opened up the way to life everlasting. And that as he gloriously ascended, you poured upon him the Holy Spirit, which he has given to his people. We thank you, Father, for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We pray that he would come now and work in us as he has been working this entire morning, that he would cause faith 
for Christ, that he would open up our spiritual eyes to the beauty, to the wonder of who you are, and that it would transform us, that it would cause us to be the holy saints that you have called us to be. We pray, Holy Spirit, that we would learn to not grieve you, that we would not quench your activity, but that we would honor you in the way that we come to your word and the way that we read it and trust in it. We pray, God, that you would give us these great gifts, cause faith for Christ and true love for him to flow out into obedience. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.